Welcome to Knowing Neurons, where neuroscientists take you on a guided tour of the brain. Whether you're a science enthusiast or a scientist yourself, if you're interested in the brain, we've got something for you. I'm Elizabeth Burnett, and joining us today is Dr. Ashley Javanet, an assistant teaching professor from UC San Diego who recently wrote a book on neuroscience and careers in the field called So You Want to Be a Neuroscientist. Hi, Ashley, and thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So you're a teaching professor, which I think is a title many of us may be unfamiliar with. Uh, what does your job exactly entail? Sure. Yeah. Um, so as a teaching professor, I'm in sort of in a parallel track to research professors. I am still tenured, but the main focus of my job, unlike a research professor, is, as the name suggests, teaching. So I spend uh, most of my time teaching and or developing materials for teaching, trying to think of innovative ways that we should be teaching differently. And I also think a lot about neuroscience career paths and education. I serve as the neurobiology advisor, so I'm constantly thinking about, you know, how should we train the next generation of neuroscientists? Uh, my position is kind of unique. It exists at some major universities across the U.S. and in the UC system specifically. But I think more and more, especially as there are more and more people going to big public schools like the UC system, uh, there's more need for people who are primarily focused on teaching. So that's where people like me come in. And I know you have a really strong background in technique development. How did you navigate the process of moving from that background into education? Yeah, I think that that's a funny thing because actually it, it might seem really different, but in fact, they're really related because um, you know, when I was a, a postdoc, I was doing electrophysiology and it was really the, I had done a little bit of electrophysiology as a grad student. I primarily worked on imaging techniques as a grad student and then kind of switched to electrophysiology in my postdoc. And, um, as it turns out, this job that I applied for was looking for someone who had a background in electrophysiology and would be able to design and teach a new neuromyology lab for undergraduates. And so, um, as it turns out, my my role um, now in, in developing this lab, you know, when we're in person, of course, we're not now, but the in-person version of the lab has a lot of hands-on techniques. And a lot of my job is getting that stuff up and running and figuring out how we can make it work and, and figuring out some open source solutions and things like that. So um, in fact, it, it ended up being really, really helpful that I had this background in techniques. Um and I think, you know, I, I was just drawn to techniques in general because I'm kind of a, a little bit of an engineering mind. And, and that is kind of fun as a teaching professor teaching this lab class, because a lot of what I have to do is figure out, you know, how we can get things to work and how we can get it to work for our particular population, which is, you know, undergraduate students. Do you do any research as a teaching professor, like in the education sphere or are your students interested in moving in this direction of technique development? Yeah, I do a, a little bit. So in my role, we're expected to do some sort of scholarly activity. For some people in my job, that means they are doing education research. Some people in my job actually did a postdoc in education research, so they have a lot of expertise in pedagogical techniques and that sort of thing. Um, other people in my job are sort of more interested in curriculum development and, and developing innovative ways to teach um, different topics. So for me, that's neuroscience. And so I fall a little bit more at that end of the spectrum. Um, so my research, quote unquote, is, is kind of more about, you know, what are the ways we should be teaching? What are the kinds of activities we can do in the classroom that are accessible and low cost 
and also teach things that we care about as neuroscientists, you know, that are really representative of the next stage of the field. So that's kind of where my scholarly work is right now, is kind of developing those activities. In a couple of years from now, I'd like to really be actually doing a little bit more education research in this space. So I'd like to know, for example, you know, how should we be teaching coding to students who don't identify as sort of computational or mathy people? Um, is there something different about you know the way we should be teaching coding to people who are going to go on and maybe use coding as a neuroscience researcher, but don't necessarily need to know all of the ins and outs and concepts behind computer science? Um, so that's kind of like where I'm headed. The other main thing I'm interested in is uh, the diversity of the field and how we can involve more diverse uh, students and recruit and keep more diverse students in the field as well. So um, as a part of that, I'm, I'm now um, co-directing this um, summer program where we're going to bring transfer students onto campus who are coming to UC San Diego and train them up in neuroscience techniques. And I'm hoping that um, I'll learn a lot and be able to sort of understand by working with those students what things we can do in order to keep and that sounds um, amazing more and more diverse populations into our field. And going back to the um, going back to the coding part, you mentioned that a lot in your book and kind of encouraged trainees who are wanting to pursue a career in neuroscience to learn coding and computational skill sets in general. Could you talk a little bit about the importance of these skills from your perspective, both as a neuroscientist and an educator? Yeah, totally. I, I think if you talk to any neuroscientist or most neuroscientists, um, they'll tell you that you need to know how to code or at least you need to know how to like hit enter after a, running a MATLAB script or something along those lines. So I I think that neuroscientists recognize pretty broadly that coding is minimally useful, um, if not necessary. And so from my perspective as an educator, that makes me think, okay, so that means that the students in my classes that um, want to go into neuroscience, therefore, should at least be exposed to coding early on so that they can start developing those skills. Um, so that's something I have been thinking a lot about. Um, in the lab class I mentioned, I am trying to integrate coding into that in sort of a gentle um, way, especially for students, as I said, who, who may have this sort of preconceived notion about what it means to be a coder. Um, so I'm trying to sort of gently introduce it in that class. But then I also teach some more advanced classes, um, a neural data science class, which really is focused on students who have said, okay, you know, this is something I really want to do and I, and I want um, access to these skills. And so that's really what that class is about. Um, yeah, so I, I'm thinking a lot about this and I think it's, I think it's really important. Um, and it's important for neuroscience research, but it's also important from an equity and inclusion standpoint because the truth of the matter is, and the research shows that there's more and more jobs that require coding and that those jobs pay more. So that means that the students that are learning coding as an undergraduate will have access to more jobs and better paying jobs. And if the students that have access to coding as an undergraduate are primarily white or primarily male, that's a problem because then that just propagates more inequities down the line. And so when I think about the situation at UCSD and I think about the fact that our biology major is extremely diverse, well, let's say not extremely, but uh, relatively diverse um, compared to, say, some of the physical sciences or computer sciences, um, that means for me that I, I want those students to at least have some exposure so that they can say, um, yeah, I, I, coding is something that I that I want to try or that I could get into. And so um, from my perspective, it's, it's not just about training up neuroscientists. It's about 
giving access to students who might not normally think that these are fields for them because these fields actually um, down the line will uh, open up more and more doors for them. Do students usually come into your classes with a programming background or are you like their first exposure? Um, yeah, so so for my class, students generally come in not knowing how to code. And um, the main reason for that is they're biology majors and they're usually taking my class um, towards their neurobiology major. And at UCSD, these things kind of live in different worlds. So if you're a biology major, you generally don't have access or really exposure to some of the computer science and cognitive science classes that actually teach coding. So most students come into my class and they um, have never even really seen code before. They have some preconceived notions about coding being difficult or them not really being a coding person. Um, and so one of the things I have to sort of tackle, you know, the very first time we open a Jupyter notebook is, look, uh, we have these ideas in society about what a coder is, and those things are just not true. And, um, you know, tackling those sort of preconceived notions head on is something that I think a lot about and, and try to do quite a bit. Okay, great. Um, so let's talk about, so you want to be a neuroscientist, the book. Uh, what drove you to write this book? Yeah, so um, I should say it wasn't originally my idea. So I uh, had been writing a lot and working as an editor with a organization called Massive Science, which is great. They do really amazing um, science communication and, and train scientists to write um, for the public. But um, so I was, I was working with them a lot and I wrote a piece that got a, a bit of traction on doing animal research. And um, the editor at Columbia actually reached out to me. And I think after seeing this piece and after seeing some other things I had written and said, you know, do you have any interest in writing a book, a book about um, being a neuroscientist? And he knew that there was this book um, from the early 1900s by uh, Santiago Romani Cajal, the sort of founding father of neuroscience. And he said, you know, this book is 100 years old. We probably need an update. And um, especially considering how much the field and really the world has changed in the past 100 years. So he said, like, you know, would you want to write something sort of along those lines? And uh, yeah, so. So I was like, that sounds amazing. Um, definitely on my bucket list of life things to do would be to write a book. And so I said, yeah. So I, so I wrote a uh, proposal and um, sort of, you know, really fleshed out the idea of what this book should look like, what we should talk about in the book. So that was all kind of me thinking about it and also in talking with, you know, people on social media and other things like what, what should be in a book? What do we need to talk about? Reading other sort of similar books for different fields and put together a proposal. And um, that goes through a couple of process, uh, you know, a couple of steps with Columbia University. That's the that's the press. And um, then they approved it. And then I started writing. Um, so yeah, so I, I, what, what started not as my idea, I think I, I really quickly um, adopted because I really started seeing it as this opportunity to make visible what is typically kind of behind closed doors. And what I mean is like, you know, the conversations between um, postdocs and grad students about, you know, how you get a postdoc or the conversation that happens between a professor and an undergrad in office hours where the professor's saying, you know, here's how you get research opportunities. There's, there's all these things that there's always like pieces of advice that someone needs to know in order to get into the field. But it, a lot of it is sort of piecemeal and exists all over the place. And the people that typically have access to it aren't um, the people who come from families without scientists or the, the people who come from underrepresented, um, you know, families in science. So so for me, I started seeing it more and more as a way of sort of 
trying to level the playing field and saying like, look, here's, you know, an attempt at putting together all of the information you need if you want to get into this field. And um, here's here's what you need to do and, and to try to just make that more um, explicit and concrete for people who might not have access to, you know, the professor or the parent or whoever it is that would um, normally sort of pass along that advice. Um, and then the other side of it, too, became talking about alternative careers, or, you know, quote unquote alternative careers. That's actually not really a good title because more than half of people who get a PhD don't go into academia. So if you want to talk about alternative, actually, uh, the academic route is sort of the alternative route. But in any case, you know, there's, there's this like broad array of things you can do with a degree in neuroscience and that people do do. And so a sort of second mission of the book really became, you know, let's talk about all of those different things that people do and how your degree is actually useful um, beyond the, you know, the specific thing you worked on as a neuroscience graduate student. Um, yeah. So, so that's the book. <laughs> I'm kind of going back a little bit earlier than that. When did you start getting involved with science writing in general? Oh gosh. I, yeah, I had been keeping a blog probably since early college, actually. I don't think anybody read it. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, I had a blog and I, I, I kind of always liked writing. I am generally a, a person who has always felt like I'm straddling um, being a very technical and sort of quantitative person, but also um, being very creative and needing sort of creative outlets. So so I found like science writing was a kind of nice way to, to marry those two things, those two sides of me. So I've been writing for a while and, um, you know, it started more and more turning into more and more professional opportunities. So it started by, um, you know, instead of writing for my own blog, I was writing for um, the blog for this um, antibody company um, called Protein Tech. And so they they were looking for bloggers and I applied and I started blogging for them. Um, and then it was things like uh, I, I worked on this um, this uh, online education uh, stuff for neuroscience, um, kind of like content for, for students who are homeschooled usually um, with this website called schmoop.com. And so I just randomly sort of applied for a, a sort of gig with them and started doing that. Um, and then it was Massive Science. So I, I started um, working with Massive. I was kind of one of their, I think, sort of in their first sweep of scientists that they were um training up, I started working with them and then ultimately editing with them. So it's kind of like one thing leading to another, getting more and more sort of um, like professional, if you will. Um, and also I, I um, co-founded and, and worked a lot with Neurite, which is a, um, so a San Diego branch of a national sort of <laughs> semi-connected organization of different science writing groups focused on neuroscience. And so we, uh, we started that in San Diego. So I did that all throughout grad school. Um, so yeah, so it's been a lot of time actually um, writing, you know, more or less for, um, you know, more professional outlets. And and really, uh, it wasn't until pretty recently that I, you know, started obviously the book, but then also, you know, getting more traction on Massive and getting more traction even on sites like Medium and, and actually feeling kind of more like a um, quote unquote professional science writer. Um, but yeah, so it's it's been many years kind of chipping away at it and and trying to get better and just trying to get um, the practice that it takes, I think, to ultimately be a really good science writer. Not saying that I am a really good science writer. I'm still on that path, but <laughs> but it takes it takes time and practice in order to like get better. I mean, having read the book, I can attest you're a very good science writer. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm not quite ready <laughs> to say that. 
Um, What advice would you give to someone like getting started in the world of science writing? I think the main thing is doing a lot of writing and getting a lot of feedback from different people. I think that was really one of the strengths of the sort of model of Neurite, which um, you know, was every week or every two weeks getting together and picking apart each other's pieces that we were writing. And, um, you know, if you if you write in a silo, you will you you won't get better. There's there's just no way to sort of self-improve your own writing. You need that feedback from other people. And, you know, ideally, it's people who understand what you're writing about. So, you know, especially for science writing, it's it's other scientists who understand what you're writing about. But it's also the public. It's also, um, you know, your your cousins who um, don't do science. You know, it's, it's getting feedback constantly from those other people. Um, at this stage of my career, it's listening to editors, which honestly is kind of hard to do sometimes, especially, you know, at this at this point in my career where, you know, I've um, been writing for like 10 years pretty regularly. And, um, you know, I, I start feeling confident a little bit about the way I want to say things. And I still have editors delete entire paragraphs of my writing. And um, that's that's a really hard thing. But you have to be willing to be open to that feedback to say, like, look, this other this other brain is reading this and it doesn't make sense to them or they don't think this is as important. And I think being open to that feedback is is really, really important. So the best way to get better is to listen to and respond to feedback. So switching gears a little bit, uh, what do you think are the major differences between PhD programs that have rotations and programs without rotations? I know when I was applying, um, most of the neuroscience programs did have them, but psychology programs didn't. And I feel like sometimes this kind of structural difference is a little arbitrary. Yeah, I totally agree that it's arbitrary. I I don't know why this exists. I I suspect it's sort of a historic difference. You know, um, PhD programs in psychology are much older than PhD programs in neuroscience. And I I would love to actually talk to that. So the first PhD program in neuroscience officially was at Harvard. And I would love to talk to anybody who was involved in that um, who's still around to ask about this because I, I don't know actually if they had a rotation model, but my suspicion is that because neuroscience is so diverse, the thought was you you need to get exposure to different kinds of neuroscience maybe before you choose a lab to go into. That's not to say that psychology is not diverse, but I think that the 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 range of techniques that you could be doing in neuroscience and the kind the kind of life you could have in a lab is really different. Um, in different neuroscience labs. Like you could be a molecular biologist or you could be a cognitive neuroscientist or you could be doing computational neuroscience and never never work with a living organism <laughs> throughout your whole um, PhD or, or, your, or your research. So yeah, I, I sort of wonder if the, the rotation thing came from the fact that neuroscience is so diverse, but that's pure speculation on my part. And kind of going off of that, probably the most important early decision in a PhD program is finding your advisor. How do you recommend students go about that? So the main thing for me is to choose the advisor in the lab more than the science and the specific question that you're working on. I think a lot of the conversation, you know, going into grad school is about what kind of question you're interested in and what kind of science you want to do. And that's really important. But at the end of the day, the thing that's going to impact your life in lab and your life after lab, because it's the person who's writing you letters of recommendation and pointing you to other opportunities is the lab that you work in and, and the advisor that you work in. So, you know, I, I think that starting off applying to grad school by identifying, you know, here are the, you know, five labs I can imagine working in because of their science. But then once you start um, interviewing and rotating, talking to people 
in those labs, you know, really trying to understand what is the management style, if any, of the advisor that you're working for. And, you know, what does it feel like to be in that lab? Is it stressful, but everybody is on your side and you feel supported? Or is it stressful and no one's going to do anything for you and you're going to feel alone for five years? And I think that, you know, that's the thing that matters at the end of the day. I think there's no perfect way to like know if an advisor is going to work for you. But I would say like listen to your gut and listen to the other people um, that work in the lab and, and also listen to what they're not saying too because you know people that work for really good advisors and people that are actually mentors in sort of the best sense of the word, those people get raved about. And their, their graduate students will tell you hands down like this person is great. They give me feedback. They are clear about their expectations. We meet when I want to meet. They respond to emails. Like They will say all of those things. And if someone is um, not telling you a lot about the sort of positive aspects of their mentor, then you might wonder, you know, how is it really? So so I would say, like, really talk to people. Um, really trust your gut in terms of, like, if it feels um, safe and supportive to be in a lab. Uh, do you have any tips on that front specifically for people who don't have the luxury of being in a rotation program, either someone who has to commit directly to a lab for graduate school or even an undergraduate who's looking for research opportunities and doesn't have the ability to just rotate through a bunch of different labs? That's a really good point. And um, you're absolutely right. So so what I would say is the person that you work for, your sort of PI, does not have to be your only and main mentor. Um, so one of the first things I would think about is who else could be a mentor for you in this situation? So, you know, is it a professor who you really like, who you feel like you can trust? Is it a graduate student or a postdoc in the lab? Um, you know, find find someone else who you can sort of get a second opinion from. And, um, you know, that might mean like getting someone else you can get feedback on personal statements and stuff like that, like that kind of mentorship. Um, it might mean someone that you can confide in in terms of like trying to figure out if your current lab situation is um, viable for much longer. Because I, I do think there there are situations where um, students might want to leave labs because it's not healthy. I think that a lot of labs have a negative culture, have a um, even damaging culture. And, you know, sometimes students, as you pointed out, like undergraduates who maybe just are kind of desperate for research experience will, will stay in those labs thinking, okay, this is better than nothing. But actually, I would argue in a lot of times it's worse than um, nothing. And, and maybe, you know, leaving that lab and finding another lab that could be a better experience for you would actually um, would actually be better in the long run. So, so I would say, yeah, talk to other people. Um, realize that the, that your advisor, you know, you're not stuck. You're never stuck in these situations. You always have choices. I think it's really easy to sort of feel like, oh, I'm I'm kind of stuck in this lab for now, or it's the only lab that's going to take me, especially with everything going on right now. But um, it's really, really not. And there's a lot of amazing, good. Um, mentors, people who really care about training scientists who are out there who are looking for people um, for their labs. So, so don't um, don't stick around just because you think that um, there's nothing else out there. So, if you could go back to your undergraduate or PhD student years, what would you wish to learn more or know earlier? Oh, this is a tough question. <laughs> I think I think one thing that is impossible to know, but I wish I knew, was just like how many different types of jobs there are in the world and 
maybe maybe the answer is like to feel reassured that like something is gonna work out um I think for me I always felt like I was kind of in between worlds like I when I graduated from college I actually applied to like many many different things I applied to PhD programs in neuroscience but also dual degree programs but also the Peace Corps and got an assignment to teach science in sub-Saharan Africa (laughs) and so like I felt very torn between like what I wanted to do really and I think that I I didn't really know that ultimately there were ways to combine these things and there were jobs like mine currently that actually allow me to combine these things and so you know I think maybe it's just like a, a knowledge that, you know, there's there's lots of different kinds of jobs in the world. And um, there are jobs that don't exist now that will exist in five years. So like the training that you want to get, you know, as an undergraduate student or even as a graduate student isn't necessarily like for a specific job because that job might not exist yet. But the training is like what you think is important. And so like honing in on just like the skills that you either enjoy or you think are important, that's that's kind of the thing that I would use to guide um, career. And so I guess, I guess for me, like, I wish I kind of knew that and was reassured by that fact. Cause I was always like, not hundred percent sure what I was doing. Um, when I started my grad program, I wasn't like hundred percent sure I wanted to go into research and I ended up leaving. It's kind of the opposite trajectory that most people take, but I ended up leaving my PhD program wanting actually to start a lab more than when I started my PhD program. And so then I was like even more confused. So I did a postdoc and cause I really liked it. Um, yeah. So I, I think like just like a little bit of patience with like the not knowing is something that I think is really important and that I wish I could like send to my former self. Um, and I guess related to that patience too, is just, you know, I feel like I, I'm very eager to like plan, um, in advance. So like I, I interviewed for my postdoc like way in advance. And, um, I think that that's like a good skill generally, but, but honestly, I think, you know, I could have waited a little bit. I could have like sat in my um, PhD a little bit longer. I think I could have, you know, even taken a gap year. I went straight into my PhD program. Um, so like, I think a little bit of patience with like sitting in the uncertainty is okay. And that's something that I, I try to stress to students, especially students that I think are, are kind of like me and the way I was, which is very much like, okay, I need to know what I'm doing in a year from now. I need to know what I'm doing in six months from now, um, which I understand. But also, you know, sometimes a little bit of patience is good. How would you recommend people get to know what is out there in terms of careers? Yeah. I feel like a lot of it is not publicized. Yeah, it's, a, it's a really good point. And I think especially for grad students, this is really important because like in grad students, your advisor is an academic and chances are they don't know anything else but academia. And there's nothing wrong with that exactly, but it's not going to like show you what else there is in the world. So there's a few things. Um, there's some really good resources online. So the Society for Neuroscience actually has a whole career section that I really like that that has um, videos that they've done, you know, sort of panel discussions with people in different jobs. A lot of different sort of professional organizations have these resources as well. So if you're interested in science policy, there is a lot of um, stuff out there online about um, science policy and what that looks like. And there's a kind of a concerted effort to make that more visible to scientists in, in early stages of their career. Um, yeah. So, so, so like looking around online, looking around on social media. Um, yeah, it it is a tricky thing. It's just talking to people. Um, I guess one thing too, that I feel like I did and I, and I don't, 
I don't think this was necessarily intentional in this way, but looking back, I think this is what I was doing is I, when I was in my postdoc and I wasn't really sure that I wanted to continue for much longer because I, I, I wasn't convinced I wanted to start my own lab. Basically, I started sort of feeling this tension around like, well, why, why am I doing a postdoc if, you know, if I don't really want to like start a lab someday? Um, and the thing I did in that moment was I, I, I sort of just started talking to people about what my ideal job would be. And I actually remember talking to this um, person who I had originally met at UCSD in this teaching program I did. And I, and I said to her, like, you know, I wish there was a job where I was like, teaching and, and writing and, and thinking about neuroscience and like, you know, I just want there to be like this, this job, you know, like, and I just like, feel like I, I put a bid out, you know, and, and I didn't really know what the job was. Um, but I sort of was able to identify the things I wanted that job to be. Um, and as it turns out, she was the first person to forward me this job announcement for this job because she looked at it and she said, this is exactly what Ashley was describing. Um, and she forwarded it to me like immediately. And so that kind of gave me like a few days extra before I heard about it from other places, um, about this job and gave me like a head start on writing the, the application for the, for the job that I have now. And so I think like one piece of advice maybe is just like talk to people and, identify what are the key components of your job you know do you need to be independent do you need to work nine to five uh, do you need to live in a certain place like what are the things and then put that out into the world by talking to people and and then you know see see what comes back so so I guess my answer to your question is two parts one part research seeing what's out there online um, you know about these different positions and the kinds of positions that exist and two is being really kind of clear with yourself and with your friends and professional network about the things that you want in a job. Out of curiosity, what changed over the course of your postdoc where you kind of went through from wanting to start a lab more than you had at the beginning of grad school to coming out of it, realizing that you didn't actually want your own lab? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think a couple of things happened. I mean, I think that I, you know, even when I left grad school and when things were going well in grad school, I, I never quite wanted to be like an R1 researcher, I think because because I've never wanted to be like 100% research. So I thought maybe I'd be like a sort of liberal arts school um, kind of researcher, like, you know, running a lab, but also doing a little bit of training. And I still think that would have been a totally viable option. Um, but the sort of, I think, reality that set in um, during my postdoc was um, the geography of that, which which is, you know, I was in my postdoc actually far from my partner, across the country from my partner. And realizing that, okay, if I'm going to stay in this postdoc for like three to five years and then go for a liberal arts job, I don't know where that liberal arts job is going to be. And liberal arts schools are typically in the Northeast and they're typically kind of in more rural areas. And I wasn't sure how I felt about that. And so it was kind of this settling in of a little bit of reality, which was like, you know, if, if I get one of these jobs, I don't have any control over uh, where it's going to be. And that that actually started mattering much, much more. That didn't matter when I went to grad school. It didn't really matter when I moved to my postdoc. But, you know, in my early 30s, it was like, I don't really want to move again to a new place and start over and then also figure out, you know, a job for my partner and all of these things. And so I'd say that was kind of one of the main things at that in that moment was just like the reality of kind of what is this going to look like and is it worth it to get there? And so I started thinking about other options, especially more flexible options. So I started thinking much more seriously about science writing because I was thinking, well, as a science writer, you know, you have, if you're a freelance science writer, you can live wherever you want. And that's really great. So you have a little more flexibility. I, so I talked to a lot of people about their jobs as freelance science writers to kind of figure out what that was like. Um, 
you know, and then there's like staff science writers, but that's that's also geographically restricted. They're typically in like DC or New York City, which is where the main media outlets are. And so that's, um, you know, a little restricting as well. So I, so I just sort of like started putting my feelers out for like different kinds of careers to try to figure out like what would give me flexibility, but still check all of the other boxes in my life that I felt like were important, like thinking and writing about science and also having some sort of independence over my schedule and that sort of thing. Um, and then this job came across my desk and my jaw dropped and I thought, wow, I never thought I'd be able to live in San Diego, uh, which I love, which my partner and I both love and, um, and do a job that I really like. And so I feel extremely fortunate that, um, this job came across when it did and that I was lucky enough, um, to get it because it, for me, it really, um, sort of clicked as soon as I, as soon as I saw, um, this kind of position for me. So maybe we can also talk a little bit more about the flaws in current neuroscience education. Um, what areas do you think neuroscience programs come up short and what could they be doing better? Hmm. Yeah, so we talked a little about coding. So I think definitely like more quantitative techniques. And, and I think a, a lot of um, undergraduate programs, and especially at UCSC, were thinking a lot about this. And I think People generally don't know how exactly to implement it or don't have the the people to teach those kinds of classes. Um, but I kind of think more broadly about this, like, you know, uh, anybody who's been through the education system, especially in science, will will tell you, I think, that that it was unsatisfying, especially people that are sat- that are scientists now, right? Because the truth of the matter is the process of doing science, to science and, like, being a scientist is a lot different than taking AP biology. Um, and there's this real disconnect between the way that we teach and um, the way that science is ultimately done. And so for me, um, in my teaching and the thing that I try to emphasize is not, you know, root memorization, you know, which is easy to assess. I can easily assess whether or not someone's memorized a fact. Um, but instead, you know, developing questions and thinking really critically about data, which is a harder thing to assess. And I think that's why we have avoided it or, or or a lot of teachers typically avoid it. Um, so yeah, so I think that the 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 sort of things we should be training more are that critical thinking, are that um, assessing data for how good it is, and you know those are really hard things. And I think a, a lot of people know this. It's not a new message. I think that the thing that's hard is is assessing it and figuring out. You know, how do you know if a student is thinking critically? And that takes a lot of time. And at big universities, it takes a lot of time to grade even like an, a short open-ended question for a 300-person class. And so I think the the thing that's hard that we need to do more of is think about, you know, what are the ways that we can teach these skills that are hard to teach and also hard to assess, and but but do that at scale sometimes. Or, or maybe, maybe it's not at scale, but maybe it means, you know, having more people who can give feedback to students to say like, well, that's a really good idea, but have you thought about this loophole? And it's that kind of like exchange that we have every day in our labs, but students don't necessarily get access to in their classes. And so, yeah, so I don't know. It's it's um, it's teaching the process of science, I think, is is the main thing that is missing. And I, I think it's missing because it's because it's really hard. You also mentioned diversity earlier. What do you think that programs could be doing better to increase the diversity? Oh, Lord. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that's a big question. I think, um, you know, I heard someone say something the other day in a 
in a webinar that I really liked, which was like, you know, um, you do, you can do like small things. Like in every, if everybody does kind of like small things along these lines, it makes a big difference. So, so the, one of the first things is just access. So if you decide, you know, you are involved in a, um, program that has some sort of applications process and you decide that this year you're going to give two slots to people who, you know, maybe didn't have the GPA, but came from a background that is underrepresented in your field. And um, that's a, a small but but impactful thing you can do. Um, so access is one of the first things. Um, another thing is representation. There just simply aren't as many faces in textbooks or giving seminars um, or, you know, anything else sort of publicly um, that are representative of the broader population. Those those people doing those things are typically white, you know, typically um, male identifying. And so it's representation really, really does matter. And there's a lot of work on that as well. Um, and then I, I think the final piece of it is, is talking to people from underrepresented backgrounds and and asking, you know, what what is it that brought you here and what is it that's um, helping you stay because any of these questions about diversity is, is not just a question of getting people into the field because you know, that, that, that's fine. Those are a relatively easy thing to do, but there's a bigger and harder question, which is how do you retain those people and make them feel supported, especially in environments that weren't previously supportive um, in, in departments that have had um, some, some issues. Right. And that's, that's a real hard thing to tackle. And that kind of change requires institutional change. It requires uh, culture change within these departments. And that's that's not a sort of thing that um, anybody can answer really simply, but it's, it's really, really um, important. What's your opinion on standardized tests like the GRE? Because more and more graduate programs, at least in biosciences, have been waiving this requirement in the past several years. Yeah, this is a really important question. And it actually dovetails with this discussion about diversity and inclusion. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So um, I am perhaps not entirely on the side that one might expect I'd be on, <laughs> someone who cares a lot about diversity and inclusion. Because the story we tell typically in the sort of opinion you'll find on social media and such is that standardized tests are bad because they're exclusive. And that's not untrue. Um, but every measure we have is in some way biased. So another measure that we use for applications and such is letters of recommendation. And letters of recommendation are known to be biased. And that's something that people have studied. Uh, GPA is also biased. Um, you are, uh, if you're of color, for example, you could be biased against by your teachers and therefore that could impact your grades. So almost every measure we have to measure achievement is biased. And my opinion on this is, the more measures that you have, actually, the better because, you know, let's say someone had a had a bad teacher or um, had, you know, a bad day on a test, but they, they did better in these other ways, then, then let's take more data and more data is better. And an example I like to think about, too, is, you know, with the GRE is, um, you know, what, what happens if someone actually does do really well on the GRE, but they had a bad GPA and they also had biased letters of recommendation. But in fact, the GRE is tapping into something that isn't, isn't um, being measured by those other things, which is like their, their sort of root intelligence and, and being able to problem solve in the way that the GRE assesses problem solving. And that's, 
that's not invalid just because the test is um, maybe biased. So, so my stance is um, we need to make testing accessible to everybody. So it shouldn't cost anything. And for things like the SAT, it should actually be a day in school when everybody takes the SAT. So everybody needs to take it. And it's just another data point um, that you can use to, to figure out whether someone you know, is ready or will succeed in your program. Um, almost every study that's done on this has flaws, and um, that is something we could talk about more at length. But you know, there's statistical issues with trying to figure out, you know, which of these things predicts success. Like, first of all, how do you measure success in science, right? So that's a huge question. And um, secondly, you're already subselecting from a population that is doing really well on these metrics. So um, that's a statistical problem that has to be addressed. And so all these things things really matter. Um, you, if you ask me, the sort of bigger question is, should we be admitting people based on any of these metrics or should it, if we really want an equal system, should it actually be uh, random? Should it be a lottery? And um, I think that there's some arguments for yes for that, because, you know, if you want something that's truly equitable, let's just say, you know, OK, everybody that has, you know, very minimal requirements is qualified and then it's a lottery after that which in some ways is what it ends up being, right? Because, you know, you apply to 10 grad schools, you're the same person, but you only get into four. And so why is that? You know, it's not as if every grad school is a perfect, uh, you know, um, perfectly assessing you as an individual. It, it, there is a bit of randomness. If someone had a bad day when they looked at your application and they wrote it you poorly and then it brought down your average score for the committee, well, there you go. You didn't get into that crowd program. So, so I think there's kind of a bigger, harder conversation to have that is more complex and more involved than simply do we use the GRE or not. Would you recommend that lottery system for undergrad as well as grad schools? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. I'd have to think a little bit more about this. I don't know if I'm, I'm completely ready to stand behind this idea, but I think it's compelling because I think that, you know, we, we like to think that we can assess whether or not people will succeed. And the fact of the matter is, Everything that we're using to assess whether or not people will succeed is biased. <laughs> and, um, you know, you either figure out the ways to to tease apart that bias or to correct it or, you know, to, to directly um, move against it, you know, or you say we can't actually assess these qualities of individuals and therefore it's, it's going to be a lottery. I don't know. I, I think it's a really hard question. Well, I think you got at this in the book as well, that all of the measures that we use to try to predict success, none of them actually can. And there's been studies about that as well. Yeah, I think it's it's a really tricky thing, right? And I think I think that there's not one notion about what makes a successful scientist, right? Um, you know, there's there's a lot of discussion in the field already about, okay, well, you know, just because someone publishes a lot of papers, does that mean they're a successful scientist? Um, maybe not, you know, or where those papers are published. Like that's kind of the way we do things now. But I think a lot of people would disagree with those things as metrics of success, because we know that being a successful scientist doesn't necessarily mean publishing in Nature and Cell all the time. Um, although, you know, maybe that says something about your productivity. Um, being being a, a scientist is, is more complicated than that. And maybe we need a broader definition. And so, you know, all of these conversations, which are about gatekeeping, right, which are about deciding who gets to come into the field or not, um, 
all of those conversations are really hard to have without a firm idea of what it even means to succeed in the field that we're gatekeeping for. And, you know, I, I think that this isn't completely all flawed and, and terrible, you know, because I think that the power in the system as it is now is that there's many, many different people making these decisions. And, you know, if you have um, at least a few people on an admissions committee who are vocal and willing to um, give a voice to things that are, you know, not the common metrics of success, like whether someone has a paper or has a good GPA or whatever, if, if, as, long as, as long as you have a few people um, that are vocal about those things and kind of willing to voice that opinion, I think that 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 is a powerful thing in itself and that helps to work against some of these biases. So, you know, it's not all wrong, but I think I think that there are obviously things that we could be doing better. Well, I do think it's important what you said earlier about keeping people in the field as well. And I wonder if you would similarly support changing the metrics that are used to get tenure. Absolutely. I think that's a really important conversation. And, you know, I'm, I'm a new faculty member, but I'm starting to see these conversations now. And, and it's, it's really interesting because I think that people do acknowledge that it's not, you know, simply publishing in big journals that is the thing that should, um, should matter, right? But, but those things are easy to measure. <laughs> Someone's already done the, the measuring, right? Someone's already decided, you know, the nature editor or whatever has already decided that this science is worth publishing. And so a, a lot of times metrics like that get um, relied on because they're there already. And I, I totally agree. I think for tenure, it's a really complicated question. How much someone has um, been able to do for the field is more than just publishing in those journals. And I think a lot of people would agree with that. Um, there's also a question of mentorship and teaching. And, um, you know, for me in particular, that can be a bit frustrating. Those those aren't the conversations that happen at um, at these, you know, when we're talking about people's tenure decisions. Um, teaching and mentorship often comes sort of second fiddle to these other things. But, you know, I think most people would agree that those are really, really important if you're um, a scientist who is giving back to the field in a holistic way beyond simply publishing papers. So, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. It's um, each of these conversations of, of gatekeeping um, ideally would be a little bit more holistic. Not to just like continue beating a dead horse and go down this rabbit hole extra far. <laughs> it's but, totally like, fine. I love rabbit holes. Um, <laughs> kind of given that, do you think that there's merit to separating teaching and research professors as jobs or should that or should those be combined more? That's a great question and it kind of brings you back to your very first question which is like what is your job? <laughs> and I I think that this works really well in in um my division so in biology at UCSD because you know I am tasked with teaching well and um at the same time bringing you know, current research and the sort of ideas and research and the skills that students need, I need to bring all of those things into the classroom. That's kind of my job. And I love doing that. Um, and I think that, you know, there's research professors um, next to me who who don't care so much about that. And that's fine. They're really good researchers. They know how to ask questions. Um, they don't want to spend all their time, you know, thinking about um, grades or, or, you know, how to teach a particular thing. So, um, I think, you know, in, in my limited two years as a teaching professor, sort of seeing this play out, 
I I kind of like these systems separate but overlapping. You know, I I like being in a role where I talk to researchers and they're my colleagues, but I'm not the one doing the research. And similarly, I think they appreciate being in a role where they um, can learn about teaching when they want to, um, but they're not doing the bulk of the teaching. They're doing um, the research that they care about. And so I, I think we've done this weird thing because, you know, historically of just the way universities have been, which is universities do both research and teaching. And so we've, you know, combined that into one role. And there may be some people who really want a 50-50 role like that. Um, but I think most people fall kind of on either side, either wanting mostly to teach or mostly to do research. And I, I think that's fine. I think that's that can be really, really nice. Makes sense. So what have you noticed about teaching during COVID times? Are there any shifts that you think are going to stick around after the pandemic ends? Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So at this point, I've taught three quarters online already. We're in the quarter system in San Diego. And yeah, there's a there's a few things I think that I hope will shift. And one thing is, you know, there was um, this moment in, in spring and because we're on the quarter system, um, our quarter ended around June. And if you recall all the way back to June 2020, which was not that long ago, but feels like millennia ago, <laughs> um, <laughs> there were uh, these um, protests happening all over the world. There was racial unrest. America was waking up to the fact that racism exists. And um, and this was our basically right before finals week at UCSD. And it was extremely disruptive to, you know, the, the world was like quite literally on fire and it was really, really hard on top of the pandemic and top of everything else, of course. And a lot of professors were saying, you know, I have a final to give and that final is worth, you know, more than half of students' grades. And now all, all these students are telling me they can't take it because they're so distracted by what's happening in the world. And... um the thing that came out of that conversation, I think, was this sort of recognition that the way we do grades in that way, where you know everything is weighted on a, a midterm and a final, is doesn't doesn't work for students who have disruptions during those times. And it just happened that in June 2020, you know, most students were feeling this um, pressure of the world on their shoulders right as they were going to take an exam that was worth a ton of their grade, and. So, so one thing that I hope changes because, you know, it could be that in most quarters when there's not a global pandemic and, and um, a recognition of racial unrest happening, that, you know, there's always going to be one or two students in your class that have something really bad happen. And, and in most cases, you won't know about it, right? And just, just because of the probability of these things happening at home or, or whatever it is, students will have some struggles while they're taking your class. And whenever you have this sort of system where you have all of the grade is in the midterm or final and a student misses one of those things and they, um, you know, bomb the final and they bomb the class, then 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 that student's grade is, is bombed. And then, you know, all the things we talked about, like getting into grad school, et cetera, also affected. So the thing that I th hope will come out is this one, like a, an understanding of how we should be grading and assessing students. And from a teaching perspective, this makes more sense. And from an equity equity perspective, it makes more sense, which is you need more formative assessments, smaller assessments along the way, um, not just these big summative finals, which also rely on people's test-taking ability, which is also problematic. Um, and the other sort of side note to this too is that a lot of people are trying to figure out ways to like avoid cheating and all this stuff on these big finals that are so important. And it turns out it's really, really hard to um, deal with um, 
you know, academic dishonesty online, right? So, so I hope as a teaching professor and someone who cares about the way we assess students and that the process is um, equitable, I hope that people will have like more smaller assessments along the way um, rather than these big finals. And that might seem like a nitty gritty detail, but I think the implications of this are really big for, you know, students who have just had like a, a really bad thing happen. And then all of a sudden their entire work in the classes um, is basically thrown out the window because they can't take the final or whatever it is. So I hope that that changes. Um, and in general, I think we've learned that, you know, some things work well online, like, you know, I, I think that after this, I will have more office hours online because, you know, the truth of the matter is I can have my office hours, you know, one or two hours a week. And then, you know, what happens if a student is working up until my office hour and then like, you know, has to go pick up their mom from work or whatever it is after um, that. And they basically can't make my office hour because it's on campus. And so, you know, having things like virtual office hours actually is an accessibility thing. And and I've I've sort of learned that virtual office hours works reasonably well. So, I think having more meetings and, and things online for the purposes of accessibility is another thing I hope will actually come out of this as well. The increased number of assessments thing just really ties into our complete other discussion about uh, just needing more and more metrics for success, more and better metrics. Absolutely. It's so, just more data yeah. points. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody has bad weeks. And, and if you're assessing someone based on a bad week, then you have an inaccurate assessment. So from your perspective, what makes a successful scientist? <laughs> oh, it's such a good question. It's so hard. I think the people I that I think are amazing scientists are extremely curious and they don't come into a problem with um, a way w with an answer. Like they, they come into a problem with a completely open mind um, in terms of what the answer could be. And I think that that makes a good scientist because, you know, the answers aren't usually straightforward. And if you go in with an idea of how something has to be because of, um, you know, because of the way it's always been or because of, you know, the, the way you perceive a system to be working. Um, and then something conflicts with that understanding, you know, you can either push, push against it, or you can um, integrate it into your sort of worldview or your um, conception of how a system is working. And so I think the best scientists are open-minded and that's up still with this diversity conversation as well. Um, it all comes back to that as it turns out. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and they're curious because then the step after that, after you are um, confronted with something that doesn't fit your worldview or your scientific view is to say, well, why? And um, yeah, so I guess I guess that answers your question. Um, great scientists are curious and open-minded. Great. So just to wrap up, let's do some uh, really quick advice sound bites for neuroscientists at different stages of their careers. Uh, what would you say to a postdoc? I think for a postdoc, you know, let's assume that this is a postdoc who wants to keep doing research. I think the most important thing to think about at that stage is really how do you kind of position your research questions as being optimally distinct? And that's a phrase that basically means, you know, it, it overlaps with other people's interests um, enough 
but is is distinct because it you know it is what you want to work on and is sort of separate from what other people are doing and so you know when interviewing for faculty jobs you want to be able to say like look this is really similar to the things that you care about but the thing that I'm going to work on is um, you know different in this way or distinct in this way and so I think that that's a important thing to think about as a postdoc. And what about a grad student? I think for a grad student the main thing is to talk to people who aren't academics. And I think that that can be hard and kind of goes back to a previous question about, you know, how you get information about other fields. But, you know, as a grad student, you're surrounded by people in your lab, you're surrounded by your advisor and your thesis committee. And I think that it's really easy after five years of that to think this is the only way I'd be happy and this is the only way forward. And a PhD is is just one route into, um, you know, one specific thing, which is academic research. And it really, really isn't. And I promise you that people are very, very happy doing things that aren't academic research. And so um, my main thing would just be to talk to those people and sort of, you know, get outside of your sort of um, purely academic space. And what would you say to an undergrad? For an undergrad, I would say to just do the things that interest you and take the classes that interest you. And you know, the main reason for this is you don't know exactly what jobs are going to exist in five years from now. And you don't know if you're going to want to go to grad school ultimately or med school or whatever it is. But the thing you can sort of figure out when you're an undergrad is what you're interested in and the kind of work that you want to do and, and really what's important to you. And so I think that as an undergraduate, your sort of main thing is to just pay attention to that and pull on the threads that you find most interesting. And then finally, what would you say to a high school student who's just starting to get interested in the field of neuroscience? Yeah, I think, and maybe I'm biased because this is what I did, but just read about it. And, um, you know, if you're if you're thinking neuroscience sounds cool, um, you know, read neuroscience, like popular neuroscience books, um, you know, and, and similarly pursue the things like the classes and the extracurricular activities that you just find interesting and fulfilling. And, you know, you may not know exactly how those things are going to help you now, but if you're always working on things that you care about and things that you find meaningful, then then that's going to get you to the place you want to be um, in the end. So, yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Of course. Thank you for having me. This is really fun. Thank you for listening to the Knowing Neurons podcast, and thank you to Dr. Ashley Javanet for joining us today. Ashley's book, So You Want to Be a Neuroscientist, is available now, and if you are a neuroscientist considering becoming a neuroscientist or are just interested in the field, you should check it out. You can use discount code CUP20 at cup.columbia.edu to buy So You Want to Be a Neuroscientist directly from Columbia University Press. And you can follow Ashley on Twitter at Analog Ashley and on Instagram at Neuroscience Paths, both of which will be linked in the description below. This episode was written and produced by Chao Chun Yin and Elizabeth Burnett. Thank you to Kevin MacLeod for the use of his songs Bleeping Demo, Pangea, and Study and Relax. 
If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to rate and review us whenever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to support Knowing Neurons and the neuroscience education we produce, consider backing us on Patreon at patreon.com slash knowingneurons. Patrons like you help keep the lights on for our site and enable us to create more episodes like this one in the future. And for more neuroscience, you can always visit us on knowingneurons.com for articles about the brain, science illustrations, and more. Thanks for listening.